In today's world, technology is everywhere. From the entertainment we consume, to the content we create, and the data that we distribute, here at The Edge, we explore how the discoveries of today and the innovations of tomorrow shape and evolve the way we go about our everyday lives. Let's dream a world where your imagination is your only limitation. Let's open the curtain, peer into the future, and see what's waiting for us. Are you ready? Welcome, everybody, to The Edge, a TMG Corp production. Uh, today, we are joined by uh, Haynes Strader from CBRE. And uh, what we're going to talk about today is uh, data center trends and how that market is, uh, has been shaping uh, over the last couple quarters and, and how the data center market is, is going and, and some of the things that we see moving uh, into the future and how data centers are trending, buyers are buying, and just kind of the overall landscape. So, uh, Haynes, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. And uh, we look forward to uh, some of the discussions that we're going to kind of jump into. So uh, just want to give you a minute to kind of intro yourself, tell everybody who you are, kind of what, you, what you're doing, and, and just anything that you think is relevant for people to know you, love you, like you. Perfect. Yeah, Drew, thanks for having me and TMG Core team. Glad to be here. Um, so my name is Haynes Strader. I work for CBRE. I'm a broker with our data center solutions practice. And so we're the largest uh, real estate brokerage firm in the world and the largest data center oriented uh, platform from a brokerage perspective in the world. So my job is uh, end users of data center space all around the world with their uh, data center oriented transactions. So anything from leasing space in a building to uh, buying a building to selling a building uh, to acquiring land and going through a site selection process. Uh, we do it all. We work for large uh, institutional insurance companies, uh, all the way down to uh, startups that are kind of figuring out what they're doing in the space. A uh, lot of tech-oriented um, firms, um, but kind of all across the board. Any kind of data center-oriented transaction, that's that's what I do specifically. And then CBRE more broadly does uh, facilities management, project management, um, and a bunch of other services as it relates to uh, data centers. So. Uh, we've got a ton of research and, uh, you know, are constantly tracking market trends in order to serve our clients. Oh, that's awesome. How, and how long have you been with CBRE or even been in the, the data center brokerage space? Yeah, so I've been in the data center space for about five and a half years and with CB for six years. So um, most of my time focused on, uh, you know, UPS systems and generators, not, not uh, office amenities and, you know, loading docks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. It's a little more interesting on that side, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So, um, so one of the icebreakers that we use, uh, you know, with our guests is, um, you know, in your field and your your line of work, what is the kind of the most interesting, crazy, just off the wall thing that you've uh, that you've seen, whether it be, you know, a transaction that you were a part of, or you know, something that was kind of a you know uh, a curveball, left hand turn in in your industry that was just unexpected, not something that anybody kind of planned for, and it was just a you know a wow moment, whether that's a uh, you know, something that was a, a huge success that nobody predicted or, you know, something that uh, maybe was less than ideal in terms of its, its execution, but just a nugget for people. Yeah, well, not to plug TMG Core too, too aggressively, but honestly, the, uh, the rise of immersion cooling, I think, has been something that has really uh, been out of left field for us and not something we'd necessarily anticipated. And it's not just sure. TMG. We're, we're, we're seeing it, um, you know, down under Geo Solutions in Houston. Um, CGG in Houston, uh, there's a few groups that are really on the front end of um, this emergent, emergent cooling. And it's just, it changes the entire way that you look at how a data center works from an infrastructure perspective. Right. And so um, the amount of densities you can, you can create and the amount of real estate you need associated with it is totally different than your traditional data center transaction. So I think that's been a really exciting um, trend for us, and it's been fun to learn. You know, it's it's been fun to learn. I still don't know enough about it, uh, and and I, it still hasn't been adopted as massively as we would like to see. Um, but but we're finally starting to see some of our largest uh, types of clients, you know, dip their toes into that that sector and um, start to experiment and really uh, do do more R and D type projects associated with it. I think the other the other piece that we really didn't expect to, I wouldn't have anticipated, would be cryptocurrency. Um, you know, that's been a huge space and it's all about, you know, getting to the cheapest total cost of operations, mm. cheap power and uh, cheap over overhead. Um, and so that's, 
been a bumpy road for sure, watching that kind of come out of the ground. And, and uh, I think we're seeing Texas emerge as one of the, the key geogra geographic areas where it's possible to get massive amounts of low cost energy um, without, you know, picketers outside of your property, uh, like you're seeing in the kind of Pacific <laughs> Northwest. So right. um, you know, I think those are kind of the, honestly, those are the two things that, that I think are exciting and aren't something that I, I was expecting on a day-to-day -day basis in this industry, but um, it's certainly emerging and, and I think we're going to see a lot more of it here in Texas. Yeah, so that's interesting. And, and uh, you know, with, with the cryptocurrency thing, obviously, to your point, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, cost of energy. And, and I know that plays a big part in, in buyers' decision-making processes, right? Because they're, uh, depending on the models that they're using in their data center spaces, whether it's, a, you know, a, a, an all-in model where they're not beholden to a price per uh, kilowatt or if they're using some sort of a metered power pass-through model or something like that, that cost of energy is a, a real big factor in, in their buying decisions. Um, where are you seeing some of the, you know, the, those power rates really come into play? I mean, obviously, to your point, you know, in the Pacific North, Northwest, with some of the hydropower that they're doing up there, they're getting really low rates. Um, you know, I, and keep me honest, I think Texas is one of the lower rates um, in terms of, of, of power and cost per, per KW, where, where are those trends kind of taking buyers in terms of, of their, their decision-making processes? Yeah. So I'll, I'll bifurcate that question a little bit. So from a, a data center, you know, from a data center perspective where you have redundant feeds and you have a higher level of reliability, you're not necessarily um, doing load demand response, or maybe you are, but um, you, you have kind of a guaranteed amount of uptime and right. you've got generators in place and all that kind of stuff. Power rates, um, you know, in the Pacific Northwest can get as low as kind of two and a half cents. That, that'd be definitely on the lower end. Um, in Texas, we're seeing rates anywhere from the low, low threes, I mean, three cents, 3.2 cents, up all the way to six and a half, seven cents uh, in, in the DFW area. Um, in uh, San Antonio, it's kind of between uh, five and seven cents. Um, and then in Austin, uh, we're seeing... Um, well, Austin Energy is typically, it's regulated and it's a municipality-owned utility. So we're seeing rates closer to uh, that seven to seven and a half cent mark. Um, but then in the greater Austin area, when you get into LCRA, Blue Bonnet territory, uh, that rate gets a lot in Dallas. Um, what's kind of crazy is on the, on the crypto side, especially if you own your own substation, um, you can get into the twos. Uh, manageably but the commitment has to be you know in the hundred plus megawatt range to the utility yeah. to get to that kind of pricing sure um, and so it's possible but it's it's you've got to have serious dollars uh, to commit to a project to be able to do that um, and willing to commit to some you know some term with the utility gotcha yeah and, and um so you know one of the trends and that that so, you know, in full, you know, transparency, obviously, you know, Brad Ashley and I, you know, came out of the Colo space um, prior to coming over to TMG. Uh, you know, one of the trends that, that I, you know, in 2019 and, and, you know, based on who you listen to and read, 2020 is going to kind of continue that in, in terms of the hyperscalers just eating up, you know, massive percentages of the, you know, the, the data center purchasing that's going on and building and land grabbing and all of that. Are, are the hyperscalers making their way into those markets where the, you know, the power is, is a factor or, or are they with their budgets and what they're doing able to, you know, uh, assume whatever the, the, you know, the cost is. I mean, what, what's really driving the hyperscalers buying trends right now? Yeah. So um, it, it varies hyperscaler to hyperscaler. It's not all the same for each one. Um, I think, you know, what we see um, from uh, certain ones are, you know, they're really driven by tax incentives and, and how the tax incentives are, are laid out in certain states. So that's, you've seen, um, you know, massive numbers of these hyperscale data centers go to Des Moines, Iowa, for example, um, which has very attractive tax incentives. It actually has a pretty high rate of power relative to a lot of these markets, um, but really low cost of land, a lot of tech talent availability, and not a lot of competition from, you know, of industries uh, in that area relative to being able to go acquire, you know, there's there's a uh, one of one of the large owners there uh, manufactures lots of technology devices that a lot of us have, and, and they have thousands of acres of property in Des Moines, and uh, 
you know, that's hard to that's hard to replicate in other markets where you have the available power infrastructure and fiber infrastructure to support uh, those kind of massive facilities. Um, but we are seeing them come to Texas. They're all pretty much in the Pacific Northwest already. Um, they, sure. they were kind of the ones that got that market out of the ground. Um, a lot of that is not only power costs, but also, um, you know, intercontinental connectivity and getting to uh, the subsea cables that, that go towards Asia um, is, is a really important uh, factor for those markets. Um, in Texas, uh, we, in Dallas specifically, we've seen Facebook and Google um, deploy major uh, projects here. We've seen Microsoft really as the, the primary user for San Antonio in a big way. Um, and I think we will continue to see new deployments uh, in various markets in Texas. Um, Austin even has uh, a hyperscale user. We can't disclose who it is, but they're, they're primarily in Colo um, in that market. Um, so I think and that, that, that decision, I think, was largely driven by talent and where their offices are. So, you know, each, each player makes kind of different decisions. I think um, a lot of it has to do with the regulatory environment. Thing, both incentives and laws that are good for those tech companies to be in. And uh, I think Texas, frankly, has some wood to chop in that department relative to other states. We've seen uh, Illinois, Georgia, Minnesota, um, uh, Ohio, and other states, uh, Arizona, come out with more sophisticated uh, tax incentives in the last uh, three years. And, and Texas's uh, incentives are almost now seven years old and uh, just aren't up to date with where technology is. So I think to really drive the kind of hyperscale activity that we're seeing in, in Northern Virginia and, uh, you know, even even parts of California and Pacific Northwest, you need to adjust um, the way that we approach tax incentives for those types of companies. So hands on, excuse me, hands on top of that, you know, we've known each other for many years from my previous life in co-location. Uh, and I'm actually learning new channels that I didn't know then because because I'm not in co-location anymore. Uh, they're sharing a lot of information with me that typically you wouldn't if I was a co-location sales rep. And so my question, to kind of piggyback on the hyperscalers, is I feel like a lot of the news lately and a lot of the conversations I'm having, you saw about 24 months ago these large hyperscalers buying massive amounts from colo providers. It doesn't really matter where in the United States, right? Hotbeds, you talked about them. I feel like the conversations I'm having now and the news I'm seeing, they're building. They're not really buying as much as they were. Do you feel that's the same? Like, do you feel that's right? Um, I, well, kind of. So I think that they are building a lot. Um, they're still leasing a ton of colo okay uh, you know they're they're still a major colo user so if you look at northern virginia you know we had 250 plus megawatts of net absorption in 2019 and you know we're nearing 100 megawatts of leasing in the first quarter of 2020 um that's absorption plus pre-leasing so uh -huh. you know that's largely driven by hyperscalers Okay. But when you look at the Northern Virginia market, when you look at Ashburn, Sterling, uh, kind of those key areas where a lot of the hyperscalers are, there's simply not land available for them to buy and build. So they have to lean on the large hyper, or, sorry, the large co-location providers in those markets that have acquired a lot of that space, or they've got to go out to Manassas and Reston. Um, we did see commerce um, and cloud provider buy uh, you know, a big chunk of land in, in Northern Virginia for an unprecedented number. Um, and you know, so I think you're seeing that happen still where, but you know, the reality is it's, it's both, it's not one or the other. And I think, you know, frankly, if you look at what's going on right now, kind of regardless of what the trend was in Q4 2019 and where that was headed, if you look at what's happened because of uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 and just the, the business impact that's having, everyone is leveraging their cloud services. So if you had a you know, business continuity service in place, if you had um, virtual uh, environments up for work from home, all of that's being activated kind of all at once. And I think we're seeing a lot of organizations find value in these contracts that they had where um, you know, they didn't have a colo, didn't have a data center where they could spin up their own infrastructure and being able to do that virtually is um, you know really a, a, a boon for these cloud operators. So my guess is that we continue to see them grow um, in markets where they can either own and build or 
lease powered shell and build the infrastructure themselves and kind of own the expensive part of the building, they're going to do that. It's, it's less expensive. It's easier to do. It allows them a lot more flexibility. But in markets that are tighter, you know, when you think about even Dallas, Chicago, Northern Virginia, anywhere in California, um, the reality is you have to lean on these colo providers uh, to be able to get in the right location, to get the right amount of connectivity, and for it not to take three years. You know, a new project in Santa Clara is a 36-month project minimum. You know, and so um, that's those lead times and the availability of sites is definitely a big thing. Um, I know that you know one of the large uh, hyperscalers that's been under some some government scrutiny just due to their scale as a social media company has decided really to scale back on new build. So they apparently more at leasing, but you know we'll see how that all plays out. I think the reality is uh, we're going to continue to see build. Yeah. Now, as a follow-up to that, Ains, um, obviously going into the end of the year, Gartner said a whole lot about edge and what the edge is. You know, and there's several different definitions of the edge. But from your perspective, you know, given the transactions that you're a part of. Has have you seen an uptick in different customers wanting to develop sort of an edge strategy and kind of decentralize what's going on, or is it just more of they're trying to get to different parts of the United States that they haven't quite been to? Like from what you're seeing, what is kind of the definition of the edge from that perspective? Yeah, so I mean, the way I define edge, and it's it's different based on what different companies are doing, but it, it's the ability to reach the maximum number of eyeballs with the, the lowest latency possible and, and basically having, you know, scale and compute on a, it's having lots of hubs going back to a major, you know, lots of cogs going back to a major hub, right? So um, in order to do that successfully, I think we've seen companies leveraging, we've seen large enterprises leverage edge-oriented compute companies. So we're seeing a lot of the content, the, the folks that are the, the sort of on the bleeding edge of this are really the content delivery network. So it's, you know, it's the Akamai's and uh, Cloudflare and companies like that that are deploying edge nodes today so that our, all of our streaming services work. I mean, that's, I think, in my mind, that's the heaviest demand today on the edge is getting to every household in America so they can watch Netflix and Hulu and, you know, whatever service they're watching. Absolutely. I think the biggest boon to come for that is really 5G. And it's the enablement of all of this Internet of Things where suddenly everything in our house is talking to each other uh, and all of these devices need to be able to simultaneously upload the data that they're creating, have that analyzed and sent back to the end user. That's, you know, I mean, just if you think about automated cars, the, the, I think the, the goal of automated cars, whenever that happens, and I don't think that's in the next three years, but it's probably in the next 10 years where we're really going to start to see that roll out. Um, most of the compute should happen in the car. So the, the car should have some very serious compute capabilities so that, you know, if there's a problem, you don't want your car buffering on the tollway uh, and flying <laughs> off a bridge. So it needs to be able to handle that if it loses connectivity or for whatever reason in the car. But it then needs to be able to send a massive amount of data. If you think about all the things that are happening in a car somewhere to be analyzed and to improve the network and improve the reliability and all of that. And it can't just be when you pull in, you know, today, if you have a pretty smart car, most of that's happening when you go get your car service. They're, they're plugging into a, a hard drive and then they're uploading all of that to a cloud somewhere that's, or a data center somewhere that's analyzing that. So I think the amount of data that's going to arise from the ability through 5G is what's going to really drive edge computing. And I think that the first places you'll see that are the CDNs and then the network carriers uh, who are providing a lot of those 5G services. Um, and they may choose to partner with companies that are focused more on edge computing. But I think that's where that's headed from our business. When I'm working with a large healthcare system or a bank, that's really a managed service. They're not doing that themselves too much. I mean, they're, they're kind of managing their crown jewel compute and cloud services. And then if they have some need for an ancillary edge service, they're leveraging some partner for that. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, I was reading last night that uh, from, you know, from an edge standpoint that the, the data that, well, let me just look at my things here so I don't misquote it. So 
there was a Gartner, Gartner article that said by 2022, 75% of all enterprise data is going to be generated and processed outside traditional colo or cloud. Where, and that's an uptick from 2018. It was less than 10% of that, that data was generated outside traditional colos. So are you, to, I guess, kind of to Brad's you know, question, are you trend where it's, it's current operator, you know, like your big known data center operators are, are starting to go micro out on the edge and building smaller into second and third tier markets? Or are, there, are you starting to see other players kind of pop up in that space? Uh, or is it kind of a mix of both? Or, or how is the edge data center deployment kind of starting to shape up from what you've seen and then, and then how you're seeing prospective trends? Yeah, so we so from a colo perspective, we have definitely seen colo operators, particularly the privately held retail providers, um, deploying more and more in edge markets. So um, markets like Salt Lake City that didn't traditionally have big data center deployments and were really served from other uh, sort of Western hubs like uh, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Dallas, Chicago. Um, is now really building its own data center infrastructure because of just the availability of power and fiber in that market has gotten a lot better. Um, I think we're seeing more of the private guys find success there because there's a lot of local companies that are able to uh, anchor those projects. Um, I think you're finally starting to see the cloud guys, and this kind of goes back to Ashley's point, you know, if they're going to build a 100 megawatt project, they're probably going to build it themselves. But when they, when they want to go have a 500 kW or 2 megawatt node in a market, they're going to leverage a COLA provider. And so we're seeing those guys uh, have smaller deployments in regional markets that are more edge oriented um, mm -hmm. to serve those needs. So I, I think you're going to, again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying, where I think you're going to see service providers uh, going into those markets and creating the infrastructure so that it's an easy lever to pull for the enterprises that want to leverage edge when when and when that time comes sure so on top of that you in your opinion because i know i have mine the large like take the top five colo or reits providers do you think that they will ever either be agile enough you finding the word to use but agile enough or interested in having edge nodes and then connecting it back to, I mean, take Equinix, right? Take their backbone, for example. Let's say they decided they really wanted to get into the edge market. They're gonna put it way, way out on the edge, draw the fiber to, you know, back to 1950 Simmons or one of the major carrier hotels. I mean, that that's a that's a new endeavor. That's That's money that has to go into that pot. That's a new team that has to, do you think the big guys, are they talking about that? Do you think they're even looking at that? Or kind of like you said, um, the enterprise is going to look for vendors to do that. Do you think the large co-location providers would go step out on the ledge and do it themselves or find a partnership to do that? Are you, are you seeing those conversations? Yeah, that's, you know, yeah I, I, that's a great question. And I, I think the answer, in my opinion, just from what we're seeing in the capital markets, is it's much more likely that they're going to acquire, the big REITs would acquire a private company that's already done that successfully versus trying to create something brand new. I mean, I think when you look at the amount of investment dollars flowing into this space. Um, you can either go build a bunch of projects that works, or you can if you can buy a business that's successfully proven that model. And I think there's enough private guys out there that are their whole platform is built on an exit at some point um, that's more likely of, of how the REITs are going to engage in that space. Um, could they go do it on their own? Probably. Um, I Corsite and Equinix that are really carrier hotel oriented, they're so asset specific in the markets that they're going in new markets. I mean, if they don't control the core uh, connectivity hub for that market, they're, that's probably not a market they're going to enter. But if they can acquire a company that's successfully kind of created that ecosystem in a market that maybe didn't have it before, um, I could totally see that make sense. But whether it's, it could be any of the rates that go down that path, I, I think, um, I think eventually, you know, and you look at what's going, again, going back to COVID-19, you look what's going on and overall just market volatility, um, the data center REITs are much more insulated from what's going on than any of the other REITs out there or really a lot of publicly traded companies. And I think a lot of it is because people are seeing the value in controlling compute and network infrastructure. And, and we all still need it, whether we're quarantined at home or working from the office or wherever we are in the world. And yeah. if that was to all cease to function or not function correctly, 
um, the economy would really be in a lot more trouble than it is right now. So I think, um, you know, in, in a way, we will probably see a lot more investment uh, into the publicly accessible um, companies that, in other words, where investors can just buy stock versus um, necessarily making private equity investments and those kinds of things. Okay, that's what that's not what we were seeing. So I was mm -hmm. I didn't want to just say, hey, this is what I'm saying. I want to see what yeah. work on the same page because we now have the ability not working for one colo provider. We're talking to all of them, which is mm -hmm. neat, right? You sell colo for one for six and a half years, and now you're walking into all the others. So that's been a I think it's been a cool perspective for the people on the phone. Now we get to, for sure. to talk with the people that we are competing with, but um, no, that's thank you for your perspective on that. That's it was really interesting. Well, I think okay. when you look at the technology that you guys are creating, you'll reinvent the wheel if that's something that makes sense as a either as a product or a partnership for for some of those solo operators. You know, I think there's um, absolutely opportunity for that. And I mean, there haven't been a ton of. 15 megawatt, you know, deals, and uh, you know, one of those happened to be an immersion cooling, you know, user. So I think there's opportunities out there um, for sure, and finding the right partner to help kind of roll that out is 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 probably a good good use of y'all's time. Awesome. Now, Haynes, you mentioned the the global pandemic that we're in. You know, from that being said, is business still functioning as usual for you, and kind of where do you see? things heading obviously you know the end is unknown but you know kind of what we're in and where we're at you know how is business looking for you and what do you project it to be in the upcoming three six months to a year yeah it's um it's a little hard to predict i think as of right now um we are seeing everything that was kind of in motion in process is getting rushed to completion um you know because nobody knows what their it budget's going to look like in a month everybody's if it's kind of been approved everybody's trying to get everything done now so that um, they can go focus on all the, the volatility that's going on in everybody's business. Um, if it was a new transaction or a new opportunity that was kind of being explored, a lot of that's being temporarily put on hold. I wouldn't, not very much if it's dying or, or, or not moving forward, but um, I think until we see light at the end of the tunnel, um, businesses are more, and it's not so much that, um, they don't need to do it, um, but they're more apt to uh, take care of their own business from an emergency standpoint Absolutely. and move forward with transactions. On the flip side, and part of the downside of being a broker is I, I spend a lot of time running a process where we're going to make sure our clients get the very best pricing, they find the very best site, it's competitive, we have lots of you know parties involved to make sure that, that it's a best-in-class transaction. Well, if you need to spin up five network servers right now, by you know the end of the week, or your <laughs> employees aren't going to be able to access their email or whatever. Uh, you're not. You're probably not going to worry so much about saving an extra twenty or thirty percent in using a broker. And so I think we're we're. I'm not seeing all the transactions that are happening directly between a lot of the users in Colo and their providers that they're calling and spinning up services right now to accommodate uh, their business needs in in this crisis. I think. Oh, you know, we're what two weeks in, so. I think in a month or two that that will start to shift as people have, have kind of made the adjustments they need for the short term. Um, from a long term perspective, I think cloud is going to be a big winner in my mind. Um, you know, I, the, Microsoft was talking yesterday about how they're seeing record utilization of, um, uh, you know, their Office 365 products and a lot of the, the Azure cloud products. And I think we're going to see um, increased you know, increased attention to the services that can be provided there. That all assumes there aren't any major outages and there haven't been yet to date, um, at least not in the United States. And I think the other thing we're seeing, um, you know, I was really impressed maybe a month ago. It, it's been a month. Well, it was, it was on the 6th of uh, uh, this month. So it's the 27th today. So 20 days ago, I walked into a tour and had my, they had to check my temperature. I had to fill out a questionnaire. Um, and so the, it seemed like the operators were well aware of what was coming and understood the issues that would arise if engineering staff and security staff and folks on the ground were to get ill. And so I think um, from an operational standpoint, we're seeing the data center operators be really responsible with how they're managing this, this crisis. And um, a lot of the, the public REITs have made announcements, some of the private companies have made announcements, limiting customer access and things that um, 
you know, may honestly put them in hot water from an SLA perspective um, with some customers and they're going to have to fight that out. But it's worth it to not create a situation where there's an outage or in a facility or, or, or you're not able to maintain, you know, the operations. The cool thing in a way is most of these data centers, the whole reason they're built the way they're built is for moments like this. You know, it's it, the, the reason they have fuel contracts, the way they have fuel contracts, the way that the reason they have the redundancies that they have are to be able to run for an extended period of time when there is an emergency, when there is a lack of available resources and people. And so um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's like, in a way, it's like being a soldier on the, on the, you know, back end of a war and you never get to see the, the front line. It, it's kind of neat to see all of these businesses um, activate on the front line. And, and it seems to be working today. We haven't seen a lot of problems, which is, which is great. That's awesome. And I mean, to your point, you know, some of the customers that you have, how are they specifically handling that, you know, potential limited access to the data center? Like, you know, we've all been in the data center long enough and we have all had customers that, you know, they want to put it in a colo and never think about it, never see it again. And as long as it works, that's why we put it in a colo to the people who, you know, if you could build a tent and put it in your colo cage, they'd be sleeping right there with it. So, you know, from your perspective <laughs> and the customers, how have you been seeing that or how have they been reacting? I, I think it, um, I, I don't think it's been a huge deal. I think everybody's been pretty understanding. You know, I think the, this week, has probably been the the rude awakening for some customers as as those policies have really been rolled out. Um, but uh, as you see what's happening in New York and you see the scale of the growth of this pandemic, I think everybody kind of gets it. You know, I think everybody's on board with their trusting their colo operator uh, to have policies in place that's going to, um, you know, an illness and. Uh, you know, the the industry I think responded well, shutting down conferences and things like that pretty early. Um, I think you guys were the first ones I saw not going to a conference because of, because of it. So that was good foresight. But um, you know, it, it it's a uh, it's it's a dynamic situation, and and every every deal is different, every client is different. Uh, you know, it, it it's it's definitely hard for businesses that need to keep running uh, at you know full speed right now to um, have some perceived limited access. Uh, obviously, it's probably not as big of a deal for. A business that isn't having the kind of demand, but financial institutions, um, insurance companies, travel and logistics, um, all of those kinds of things are, are high touch uh, businesses right now. And so I think you're seeing kind of all hands on deck, but all hands on deck at home if possible. That's right. For sure. Yeah. For the first time, I, I actually started to receive calls from friend, like some of my best friends from high school that mm -hmm. I kept in contact with. And, you know, we all kind of know what each other does, right? I've got some doctors, doctors and teachers, and I get what they do, right? But I've always said, well, I'm in data centers. And they're always like, oh, yeah, that's cool. But they started to call me because they said, we're seeing all these national state homes, but data centers is essential. Like, a lot of the general public doesn't understand, like, if the data centers go down, almost your life ceases to exist. So it's just been really funny. <laughs> Building right. phone calls, like, okay, wait a second. Can you explain this to me? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Use <laughs> on a daily basis is going back to these large hubs and these. So it, I just I found it interesting over the last couple couple days specifically, especially since Texas has started to go at to stay at home essential businesses only. Um, I started to get those phone calls. So finally, we're being heard as a group. <laughs> no, that's right. No, that totally uh, hit me when I was I was at the grocery store a week ago or something and kind of getting you know supplies and. There's all these news stories about the grocery stores being ransacked. And, um, you know, I was amazed how much fresh produce and meat and fish and, you know, all of that was there. All the ingredients for an excellent meal, very easy to find, but box of Cheez-Its or, you know, <laughs> processed foods, all gone. And what I thought was so funny about that is, you know, it, toilet paper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, toilet, toilet paper. <laughs> paper towels. I was anticipating seeing that for months. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think the, the, the reality is people, if the internet quit working, people, people already don't know how to cook and they really wouldn't know how to cook. If I, I know my wife wouldn't be nearly the cook she is if she didn't have YouTube half the time, uh, you know, <laughs> how to uh, make something. Uh, and I need it desperately on the grill. So, uh, you know, it's, but it is true. I mean, life has become so dependent on internet connectivity and, um, you know, without it, Without data centers, that none of that works. And and without it, I, you're right. I mean, uh, the economy would be the first thing to really cease to function, and then 
people would realize they'd never learned how to fish or change a tire, or, you know, all the things that you need to survive. Maybe, maybe plant some plants. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I mean, and that's a exactly. solid point too. I mean, you know, I mean, we're blessed being in a, you know, a major metropolitan area where, you know, we have, you know, massive availability to extremely high bandwidth, you know, internet connectivity. But, you know, for those that live in more, uh, I don't know what a, a PC way to describe it, not major metropolitan areas, more outlying, you know, places that, you know, a 50 megabyte connection might be the, you know, the, the best you can get. Right. Um, You know, we're not seeing the effects of that, but I I think, you know, the last year or two, there's been a real big push for extending, you know, major broadband out into, you know, rural areas and those kinds of things. And I think that, you know, uh, at least I'll admit my own skepticism. It's like, well, you know, do, do the, do the people that live out in rural even really want it or need it. Right. Uh, But I think now you're seeing that, or at least I expect you will start to see a bigger push for extending broadband and 5G and those kinds of things out be out to and and beyond the edge uh, as a result of, of you know this massive you know work at home stay at home whether you're working at home or you've got three kids and you know to maintain some level of sanity you've you've played Frozen two for you know 20 times in a day um, you know to keep your kids from yeah. running amok um, so I, I will be very interested to see how the 5G network and and just broadband in general. I mean, obviously, we're engaged in a lot of those conversations uh, in terms of how that's deployed. Uh, but I think, you know, once to your point, once we kind of get a, a level set, you know, whatever the temporary new norm is, and, and we kind of get beyond that, you're going to start to see a lot of those conversations of, okay, what, how do we prepare both from a, a health standpoint, right, making sure we've got all of that, you know, if, the, in the event that another, you know, pandemic like this were to ever happen, God forbid. But then also, I will be very interested to see how the technology preparation goes and uh, preparing for whether it's, you know, a health pandemic or a hurricane, you know, any of those things. I think the technology is going to be something that people pay a lot more attention to in terms of disaster preparation uh, as at a mass scale. You know, to your point, those of us in the industry understand it, but people outside the industry don't get why you need to be prepared with technology. It's just, you know, hoard bottled water and toilet paper and you'll be fine. But the reality is our life is, you know, is, is much more technology driven, data driven. Uh, so that'll be an interesting trend to see in the future as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're spot on. I, you know, when we started at TMG back in October, right? I think it's, it's almost six months now, uh, feels longer, but I understood the value proposition just in general about the edge, not, not TMG, but just the edge. And, uh, but I did have those thoughts, like, do rural communities really want telemedicine? Do, do they really want these things? But I live in Flower Mound, Texas, right in the middle of Dallas, Fort Worth and our allergist and our pediatrician, which happens to be Drew's wife and all of these things, they're all going to televisits, but we have the ability yep. to have televisits. Um, but do those people and those children out in, you know, rural Oklahoma or Arkansas, you know, I'm, I am now a first grade teacher as of a week and a half ago, I didn't realize <laughs> I was going to become a certified teacher, but I am. So I'm doing an t- emergency cert. That's right, emergency <laughs> there was no process. It was here are the court, here's the coursework, right? But we're, we're blessed and, and, and I'm thankful. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? No, <laughs> no, I'm not. I know a lot about quadrilaterals now folks. Um, so, but you know, we have, we're lit, we're in a Mecca. So we have the ability to have yeah. this stuff, but I'm thinking about the families and the student, really the students. Um, now that I've become a teacher in the last week and a half, um, that, and I say that jokingly to any teacher that's listening, I'm not a teacher, but, um, <laughs> those families, are those kids getting the rest of their education for this calendar year? Do they have yeah. internet to support those kinds of things? So this is definitely to Drew's point, um, piggybacking on that opened i think is going to open the industry's eyes as to what real edge is and how we get those things out to every eyeball that needs them and and ashley when you're and drew when you're talking about going out to those you know tertiary secondary communities um you know rural environments who is going to be the driver of deploying that is that the the carriers is that tower companies who's going to be the first to make those investments and in order to see some power we are seeing we're seeing we're actually having these conversations um and it's been very interesting right because uh, a specific state came to us and they said 
we, when you look at the state, when people think about the state, they don't think the state is rural, right? They think of these major metropolitan areas. Yes, there are some people that live on the outskirts, but they think of the major markets in that state. And I fell into that population, right? But they came to us and they sat with us for a couple hours and they said, the government, the state government, it was actually the local government um, on behalf of the state, said, we have these communities and there are, oh, I think it was 125 schools. School districts, yeah. School districts, thank you, that fall outside of these technology zones. So mm-hmm. literally, they're, they, to break fix, they've placed Wi-Fi on the buses and oh. kids go home and the bus finishes its route. And then the bus, all of these buses strategically are parked in places so the kids can walk back to the bus and sit on the bus to do their homework, right? Wow. I didn't even know that was going on, right? In our bubble, we didn't even know. Um, So from my opinion, I think Drew wanted to say something, but like we're seeing the local governments coming to us first on behalf of the state. And then that state representative is actually coming in to see us. Um, And whether it's us or somebody else, they need, true compute on the edge so that these families, um, these school districts, because if we could, if we could put at true edge nodes, right? And we define edge as the requisition comes in and it's not a node. So the requisition doesn't come in and then that node send it to a larger data center and then it come back. And then we say edges requisition comes in, it's computed on site, requisition goes out, right? Almost zero yep. latency. Um, and so when we're, we're able to do that, uh, then it's able for these school districts that can't afford, you know, I understand how much my PCs cost, but I didn't realize until we got into these conversations, how expensive school computers have become. Mm-hmm. And for these yep. schools in these districts that don't have the funds, right? Are we going to pay our teachers? Are we going to upgrade our technology? It's not upgrade the technology. It's pay the teacher yep. and, and provide meals that's a huge cost for students who can't afford it because most of the students in these areas, they can't afford meals. So they're, they're having breakfast and take home in the afternoon. So that, and rightfully so, that's where the dollars are going. However, yeah. if there was an edge computing opportunity where the, so we're seeing the local government and state come in, talk to us because we can put HPC on the edge. Then the carriers and the tower providers are getting involved because they could be the last mile. So you can take, schools and rural communities and figure out where you want to drop these edge nodes and tie them in with fiber. And then they don't have to upgrade their technology, upgrade their software, which is a very, very small amount. And they make these, these older computers, machine learning, AI, uh, telelearning uh, modules, right? Without spending astronomical amounts of money. And now we're seeing the ISDs go, okay, wait a second, we can put a line item in our budget and operating expense every year for that kind of service right? Whether it goes, it, whether it's the state providing the service, right? That's still being worked out. But that's what we're seeing when it comes to who's using it's I see, I actually see, for the first time in my life, local state government pushing it because they have to. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I can also chime in there because, you know, as you guys know, my wife's in education, but you know, some of those issues are actually still here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And even in some of the school districts, because, you know, being on the back end of hearing, you know, part of the strategic conversations of, you know, we, we are having to worry about, you know, the kids who need to get fed, you know, and and the family stuff there, but there's plenty of kids in all of our local school districts that we live inside of our bubbles that you wouldn't think that don't actually have internet access. And so when these schools are being shut down and we're going, okay, hey, yeah, the easy button is remote learning. Well, you know, to Ashley, to your point, what the, you know, the conversation that got brought up that, you know, we were all part of, you know, the schools actually aren't built to be technology hubs. You know, like, if you really think about it, you know, there's only a handful of schools that are, you know, in the early adoption or even majority adoption phase of a lot of technologies. You know, a lot of the education systems are laggards. So when you look at, you know, just from the standpoint of, you know, for us, it's not that big of a deal to hop on a WebEx or a Zoom or anything like that and have a conversation. But to a lot of school districts, that's that's mind-blowing stuff of how do you do that when in reality it's, hey, here we have office, send an email, and we'll all meet in the conference room in 30 minutes and have this discussion. You know, so there's 
to me, it's going to be interesting, you know, from how technology gets adopted and how it gets implemented, you know, which we've kind of been talking about a little bit is, you know, where do education systems fit and fall within that? And the local and state governments are now you're going to be pushed to help out because a lot of the funding for a lot of those school districts come from the state based on attendance and test scores and all those things. But, you know, I think this points out to, you know, too is, you know, we have some companies that are responsible for, you know, teaching youth that are falling behind and, mm -hmm. you know, not really adopting technology, but yet we expect all their kids to adopt technology or all their kids have already adopted technology, whether it be on a phone or an iPad, but don't know how to use Excel or PowerPoint or something like that, which is being integrated in schools. But, you know, from the way that, you know, the workforce is going and how global reach of technology is anyway, you know, we don't have kids who know how to get on Google Meets or stuff like that, which they're now having to learn, which is super fascinating to see. And, you know, me candidly, you know, because Ashley, you've been a teacher, my wife's at home teaching. And, you know, it's kind of fun to see both the kids <laughs> and the educators have to go through the same process of, you know, well, how does Zoom work? Or, you know, hey, somebody's yelling in the background. How is the administrator of the call? Can I, can I mute that person? Um, you know, right. but to me, I also think it's going to bring kind of an eye-opening thing too of, you know, we've had so many people who rely on credit cards and debit cards that all of a sudden something like this happens and we talk about shutting down technology and, you know, if data centers were to shut down, we'd have a huge problem. Well, you know, there's still a lot of people who don't have cash in their households. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, to me, I'm very interested to see, you know, how many of the folks that have been like, anti you know fully adopting technology you know we all know people that you know have 50 alexas in their house and stuff like that but there's still plenty of folks who are anti some of that stuff how does that actually change or for on the flip side some of the people who you know can't live without their phone touching you know themselves 100 percent of the time like does this actually cause them to take a step back and go you know hey we need to look at how we use technology and how it integrates into our lives and maybe take a step back a little bit. So I'm kind of curious and, you know, fun looking at some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah I think it's going to be a massive reprioritization of how we leverage technology to your point, Brett, because you have mass consumers of technology and then you have, you have people that are anti-technology and I think you're going to see a lot of people coming to the middle. That That's what I believe, you know, because you're going to see those people that were laggards or, or you know, just, uh, you know, obstinate toward technology obviously they're, they're seeing a value in it or, or they're just had, they're being forced to adopt it. Um, and then you're going to see those people. I think uh, you're going to see those people that are, are mass consumers of it on a, you know, to a, a level that some would probably say is unhealthy. They're, they're seeing like, Oh, I, you know, my kids are actually at home now all the time. And so I'm going to spend time with them. And, you know, uh, and, and I, I think you're going to start to, again, see a, a real prioritization and, and, and a move back to the middle on that part. And, and then Haynes, to your original question, I, you know, uh, I think you're going to see a lot, and you've already started to see it, right? Like the, uh, you know, Zoom, to, as an example, you know, they're, they said during this period, you're going to, uh, any educator or, you know, um, any kind of telelearning uh, organization, they've, they've offered their Zoom services to them for free, mm -hmm. right? So that these school districts that, you know, maybe don't have the budget for something like that, they they can use that to, to assist. And I think you're going to start to see a lot of those technology organizations start to pop up once once we level set and we get on the other side of this, right? Because I, yeah. I, I believe we will res restore back to some, you know, to maybe not exactly the way life was three months ago, but we'll get back to normal, whatever, you know, to some, to a very large degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and once we get there, I, I think you're going to start to see a lot of those organizations pop up and, and say, Hey, you know, we've got the technology and, and, and we've got the ability to leverage our resources to start extending this out to, you know, to the masses in a way that's meaningful. Uh, and, you know, and we've, we've been in conversations with some, some, some companies, uh, you know, that, that they, that they have retail locations in a lot of these rural areas and they're, they're even getting into the conversations of how can we leverage the, 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 the foot or the, uh, you know, the, 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 the footprint that we have, uh, you know, in those rural areas to leverage right. technology as, as a hub in some of those centers. Uh, so I think it's going to be those guys. And, and then obviously you, you've got to have the, you know, the feeds. So, it, uh, you know, the, the tower companies, the, the carriers and uh, those guys are going to have to get involved just because that's, I mean, the network's got to have, have a, you know, have an artery to run on. 
but I think it's going to be, I don't think you're going to see one company pop up. I think it's going to be a very holistic effort, um, especially after, you know, something like this. I mean, those conversations were happening prior to COVID, but I think one of the things that, that COVID and, and Corona has done is, has really galvanized, it's, it's galvanizing people together as, Hey, you know, we're all in this, you know, Corona is, it doesn't care about age, race, socioeconomic level. It's affecting everybody equally. So we're coming together and, and we're going to fight this thing. Um, and, 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 and moving beyond, I think you're going to, you're going to start to see a more holistic effort at leveraging what's available and, and, and the development is, is something you're going to see. People are going to start to develop new technology. Are you already seeing an acceleration in some of that development? And I think it's just going to be exponentially increased as we, as we move out of this phase in one, just people seeing the benefits of it and then also preparing for some sort of a disaster moving forward as well so yeah totally um, yeah so as we kind of wind down here uh, Haynes I, I, we've talked a lot about uh, things that we've seen and interest that we have uh, are there any trends or anything just newsworthy that that you want to, to bring up or that you think is relevant uh, I, I you know I, I know we, we kind of jumped in but I want to make sure that we uh, yeah, if there's anything that you feel like we haven't covered that's relevant I'd, I'd love to hear um, no, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of it. I, I think, you know, one comment I'd make that, that just to kind of sum this up and, and think about moving forward is how we come out of this crisis and how companies decide, you know, we've been, companies have been going through digital, digital transformation for the last, you know, five to seven years and what that means, whether that's going 100% cloud or going, you know, 100% on-prem or Whatever that is, uh, we've seen a mixture of, of a lot of different things. And I think the most constant thread that we hear is hybrid infrastructure. And it's, it's a mixture of, you know, a bunch of different types of deployments, leveraging right. cloud where you need to and figuring all of that out. Sure. There, I think this kind of event puts all that to the test. And yeah. I think you're going to have a lot of organizations coming out of this that didn't have what they thought they had in place. And it didn't work the way they thought it was supposed to work. And you're going to have some that it worked really, really well. But yep. I think that's a huge opportunity for companies like TMG Core to get yourself out there and your technology out there as you know, a potential differentiator. I think you're going to have a lot of companies trying new things, realizing that um, safe and steady you know, for 10 years in IT is not usually actually safe and steady when it comes down to it. You know, right. When your infrastructure is old and uh, your systems and processes are old um, and there's an event, that test your bandwidth at you know a hundred times what was even capable when you originally designed your infrastructure. That that kind of thing will change companies, and yeah, we're going to see due to the economic environment layoffs, a lot of pressure on costs, um, and to me that's all good. You know, for for the IT world, I, I think it, that that means that dollars are going to be spent purposefully. They're going to be spent on things that are moving the ball forward, and that should be yep. good for the overall environment. Um, no, not just the technology environment, but also the real environment where people are, yeah. you know, using uh, greener technologies and stuff that's more power efficient. All that kind of thing. But um, that, that's what I hope people will take from this on, on, on from the technology side. Absolutely. All right. So, Haynes, uh, how can if people want to connect with you um, uh, in terms of email, social, where, where if they want to learn about CBRE brokers, if they have a deal that they want to uh, have you guys work for them, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Haynes Strader, I-N-E-S. And you can Google me or just go to CBRE and, and search for me. Um, but any of that's fine. I'm pretty on LinkedIn and uh, would love to get you guys connected um, with anybody. And then I've got, um, you know, we, we publish uh, quarterly and biannual uh, research reports. I'm happy to share that with anybody that's interested. Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, again, Haynes, thanks for joining us uh, on this episode of The Edge. And guys, don't forget, uh, anywhere you consume your podcasts, you can pick up The Edge uh, also at www.theedgetmgcore.com. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, guys.